Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. God, I, I love cider. <laughs> it's just great. Country boy. Fantastic. Oh. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Newnham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome back to I Might Be Wrong. Henry, how are you doing? Hello, Rich. Yeah, I'm doing well. As I mentioned earlier, I'm tinkering with bikes, which is uh, very therapeutic when there isn't much riding to be had off-road. So, yeah, it's quite a nice slow weekend. How are you? Is it all a bit boggy for mountain biking? Yeah, the really fun stuff bogs down and um, just gets horrible to wade through. So you're left with kind of gravelly byways, which are okay but boring or roads which just are just dangerous so yeah this is the time of year when you can just tinker a little bit and uh, uh and yeah have less fun but it's it's good it's good to do some maintenance once in a while <laughs> yeah needed i'm guessing yeah yeah exactly given how much you smashed them over the summer <laughs> they get thrashing so um i'm definitely getting my money's worth out of them nice yeah how about you i'm all right uh, bristol is tier three at the moment although Looking at the numbers dropping, I'm hoping that we might be back in tier two with the rest of the country sooner rather than later. But let's focus on more positive things. This is episode 50. We've made it to 50. It's a half century. I cannot believe we've done 50 episodes. That's absolutely nuts. Yeah, great. It's good though. It's been fun. It has actually. And you know what? I think I've rekindled a lot of my um, love for digging around in music and getting really into it, which... I think I've lost over the past few years a little bit. And the more we do this, the more I'm really getting back into it and really looking at albums and artists in a, in a deeper light. So yeah, it's, it's cool. Nice. And to celebrate the fact that this is number 50, you've brought a very excellent band to our attention for this week's episode. Yeah, I have. You called them Sneaky Big last time we spoke. Yeah. And I think that's quite a good description of them. I've bought vampire weekend to the table i might be a bit controversial with the album i've chosen i'm going for modern vampires of the city which is probably not there well it, it'll be a point for discussion i guess see i my initial reaction was well that's the wrong album but actually i went back and listened to it and it's a really really great album uh, <laughs> i i obviously love their their debut which is self-titled vampire weekend but again, it's as much as anything just because that's where I discovered it. And I'm not sure it's musically better than Modern Vampires. Yeah. So in terms of their album back catalogue, they've got Vampire Weekend, the original, which was back in 2008. Contra in 2010, which is also a really good album. Mm-hmm. Modern Vampires of the City from 2013, which is mainly where I'll focus, but actually the other ones are interesting as well. And then more recently, Father of the Bride came out, which is their, I mean, that was what, last year? Only last year they released that. Yeah, very recent. I actually saw them at End of the Road uh, last year, year before. It all feels so long ago now that I can't really tell. But as they were releasing that album, they were they were doing that tour and that was part of it. So yeah, it was, it's a really, that's a still very good album and I, I like it as well. I'm sure we'll get into band dynamics and things around the lead up to that. So tell us about the band. So they're from New York. We haven't done too many bands from New York on this chat, but they're one of them. They're a four-piece. There's Ezra Koenig, who's probably their main 
main man, multi-instrumentalist, and he's the guy that mm-hmm. really drives Vampire Weekend. There's Rostam Batmanglidge. Batmanglidge? Batmanglidge. I think that's how you pronounce his surname. I can work it out. Sure, let's go with that. So he's another of the really key members of the band. He left in 2016, so he didn't. He wasn't on the most recent album. As an aside, he's got some solo stuff out under the name Rostam, I think, which which is cool. Okay, I didn't know that. Uh, I might have to go and have a listen. He apparently still provided some work for the album despite having officially left the band yeah i heard that too i think they've not had a proper breakup i think they've just had slightly different different directions as as a lot of bands do so it's one of those he wants to pursue a particular musical direction they've realized that it's not gonna happen through the band and he wants to focus more more of his energy there than on vampire weekend which is i guess fair once you've had three pretty massive albums if you want to go and do something else yeah exactly other members of the band, Chris Thompson and Chris Byer are the um, the other two members. And uh, they all met at Columbia, Columbia University. Which I think is part of the driver behind them having this slightly aloof, intellectual, a bit up themselves reputation, which <laughs> from some of the stuff I've read, they feel is a bit unfair. So despite going to Columbia, Koenig talks about the fact that he was on scholarships and had to take on a load of student debt. So it's not like mummy and daddy paid his way. Yeah, this is where it gets interesting with Vampire Weekend because they they were a hit straight off the bat. They left university, recorded the album, self-funded, mm-hmm. and it got very big very quickly. But then when people looked into their background and they were like, oh, it's these Ivy League polo shirt-wearing guys. And a lot of their music, if you look at their lyrics... There's a lot of social commentary in there. Mm -hmm. And so they became an easy target for people who were thinking, you know, musicians should be poor and they should come from a really terrible background and then suddenly work their way up and then get noticed. Yeah. There's always an element of people thinking that you've got an easy leg up to these things. And while I'm sure that having some money from your parents, having an upper middle class or even upper class background will help with being able to afford instruments, being able to afford gear, having a laptop that has Pro Tools, for example, is an advantage on someone who has neither of those things. But at the same time, they didn't have a record deal. They didn't have a record label. They self-recorded everything. They got well-known through pushing through sort of influencer channels before influencers were influencers. Yeah. And then got picked up by XL Recordings, who are a pretty well-known indie label here in the UK, off the back of all of that, basically. Yeah, and they they seem a little bit miffed at the whole rich white kid image because all their backgrounds are totally not American, I guess. So Ezra's background, his whole family are kind of Eastern European Jews. Rostam's family are Iranian. Chris Thompson's family are Ukrainian. Chris Bios are Italian. So... Yeah, they're totally global, I guess, as a band. So do you think that somewhat unearned reputation is down to the fact that... So their detractors will call them twee and a bit kind of up themselves. And there's definitely an intellectual approach to their music. They're more multicultural than just straight up rock. Yeah, their lyrics are really... There's a lot of social commentary and they're not afraid to commentate on... I guess a middle to upper class 
image of life. Mm-hmm. So, so much music comes from this kind of poorer background. But these guys, they're, they're quite happy to talk about wealth, even though they're not wealthy. They've got the song Taxi Cab, I think, on Contra. They've got this lyric which says, in, in the shadow of your first attack, I was questioning and looking back. You were standing on another track like a real aristocrat. And they talk about wealth and the social differences between people. And I guess that may have put some of the hipster crowd off. But there's also an element as well of them being on the receiving end of some of that. I mean, if you are someone who is on a scholarship, your parents aren't that wealthy or even particularly wealthy at all, but you're in an Ivy League, there's always going to be that snobbishness aimed from those who have more and are there on the backs of their parents paying for everything aimed in your general direction. Yeah, and mix into that their attempt definitely in the first two albums of trying to use African music as a bit of a background, a bit like the way Paul Simon did. And it's a bit of a tinderbox. There's a great quote from Koenig who says, referencing other cultures and making music that combines those things is complicated. Mm -hmm. People with money, education, these things are complicated. But rather than admitting that we understood that, people tried to pretend that we were rich idiots ripping off African music. It's an easy dig. So people, instead of listening to the commentary, it's just bundle them into the rich kids doing the whole cultural approbation thing and yeah it's it's an easy target it is an easy target and i think partly the music makes them that easy target as well if they were a bunch of richer than they are kids but doing straight up american rock or folk or punk people probably wouldn't even have thought about it yeah it's it's the the actual musical sound that drives that i think and i certainly had that impression of them until i'd done a little bit more digging into their backgrounds yeah so they've been a bit hard done by but it's interesting that they've stuck to that vision so Mm -hmm. apparently when they formed they wrote a little rule book of these are the things that we should stick by and there was a think there was (laughs) three of them were no distortion no post-punk no trip hop so they definitely wanted had this vision of how the band should sound which is quite cool I saw a little little bit of an article about that where they sort of said, we we thought it was a bit tongue-in-cheek at the time. We thought that bands in the 70s had these kind of manifestos that they stuck to for their sound. <laughs> yeah. But I don't necessarily think it was an entirely... It sounds like it was something that they sort of joked a bit about and then someone took them seriously and went, oh, they're, they're one of these like stuck-up idiots that have have all their rules about their music rather than yeah. just just doing the music and letting it flow man <laughs> I, yeah i think someone's read that and taken it to heart and had used that as another way to have a dig at them but yeah did you know so the videos for oxford comma and cape cod kwasa kwasa were richard Awadi videos <laughs> because he'd seen them at a gig in 2009 i think in in london I'm almost annoyed that I read about that about five minutes ago because that would have made me fall. Because I, I was reading, uh, I clicked on there. Um, I can't remember where I saw it, but yeah, I must have seen it in the same place as you. And I was like, what? Straight away off the bat, you've got Richard Ayoade making their music videos. And that's just, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's such a perfect fit. It's a, it is, isn't it? It, it, re- it really is. It's, it's a marriage made in heaven there. And I don't know whether one came to the other or how they actually got got together but i dug into it a bit and it's not very clear as to whether 
he approached them or they approached him but he'd already made music videos for other bands prior to that so i'm assuming that it may have been just xl recordings had used him in the past and they felt like it was a good fit yeah that works but yeah that that first album's i guess it's almost wanders into afro pop the the whole album and um yeah i i've never quite got on with it i mean the the, the well-known singles there's a punk and there's oxford comma i love both of them but i can understand yeah. why people don't i don't really like a punk i think it, it annoys me to the point where i can I, I can see why people like it but it's it's really good fun but it's i don't know if it came on in a in a gig everyone would be going nuts and i can get that it was one of the highlights for them at end of the road for me because i i actually didn't just see them in the headline slot they clashed with another band that i wanted to see so my rule was i'd go to see them because they started first and then as soon as they played a punk i would leave and go to the other stage and they played about (laughs) halfway through their set which was perfect spot on that was their first album the second contra kind of follows up on that kind of style so there's like if you listen to white sky on there that could be a paul simon track right it's that kind of graceland vibe that's an interesting thing because a lot of people made the Graceland comparison with their first album and Paul Simon actually went to one of their gigs and sat down and had a chat with them and they were like we're not trying to rip off Paul Simon we just love modern African music and actually they talk about the fact that they love the more guitarsy modern contemporary African music rather than necessarily the the old school tribal music that people sort of think of when they think of the continent. He's like, there's so much more going on. There's so much more flavors of, of African music than I think people in America think they think of Africa as just this amorphous blob. That's all one culture. And it's, it's not at all. It's, it's totally hugely diverse continent with hugely diverse music. Yeah. The guitar on a lot of their tracks is this kind of, this very dynamic, super fast instrumental which is what you get in a lot of well it's it's not confined to one part of africa you can kind of hear it in different types of african music from different countries i mean i uh, you look at senegalese bands who reference them or, or malawian ones and they you know they're different coasts of africa but they right it's similar kind of influences so yeah there's a whole uh backdrop to their sound in those first two albums that um I can see why people said, oh, you're just doing a Paul Simon thing. Right. Well, again, I mean, you hadn't mentioned Holiday, but Holiday has that very fast-paced upstroke guitar at the start of it. Yeah. And again, that's that's quite that kind of sound. It's used much more than in maybe West, standard Western music. Yeah, exactly. And, and it adds a real edge. And like, like you say, this is a dynamic and it really drives the music forward that way. Yeah. Pitchfork put it brilliantly when they were talking about Contra, the the opening statement of Pitchfork's album review is Vampire Weekend's second album starts with Hojata, ostensibly a punching bag for people who didn't like the first one. And it's true. <laughs> it's just, it's exactly, it's exactly kind of sums up the, the first album straight off the bat in the second. Yeah, I don't like Hojata that much. Despite loving both albums, or I really love the first album, I like, I think I like Contra more than I love it. But yeah, that's the one track or one of the tracks from there that I'm less grabbed by when they play it. Like it's it's good, it's fine, but it's not one of their best by a long shot. Did you know they got sued over the album cover for Contra? You know what? I was thinking about this and I think that's how I really got into them, which is so really? weird. 
But I, I think I got into them because there was an article about the lawsuit which came up. Yeah. So I think I saw the photo of the album cover and the news of the lawsuit before I really knew them. So I looked into it and then I started listening to them. Mm-hmm. If you don't know it, the cover is a Polaroid of a of a model. Her name's Anne Kirsten Kennis, and I think they sued her for like two million. Well, she sued them for two million dollars for uh, misappropriation of the image. So it's a really messy lawsuit, or is a me- messy situation anyway. And what had happened was she'd gone along to a casting call as part of the casting call. They'd taken Polaroids, as they normally would, for those kind of things, of probably every model that came in to do it. And the guy who took the photos claims that she signed a waiver for the image rights for that image, as is fairly standard in America for photography. She claims she'd never signed it. And then when they got hold of the image, they paid him five grand for the album cover image rights, which... Seems like a remarkably small amount of money for a band that is pretty big and famous even by this point. But anyway, so she sued the band for a couple of million for using her image when she claimed they didn't have the rights to it. They then sued him (laughs) over the fact that he'd claimed to have the rights but maybe didn't. And then partway through that, his lawyers basically went, we're dumping this case. We're not going to represent him anymore because he won't return our calls. He's just getting angry about it. It's like the whole thing is just a mess. <laughs> so, so what? So they tried to sue him and he said no, and that was it. <laughs> well, <laughs> he had representation, but his his own lawyers, oh shit, couldn't actually get him to talk to them. And every time they tried to talk to him, he just got angry about stuff. And so I didn't get to the end of what happened on that it didn't it wasn't in the article that i read but yeah it sounds like it was a, just a mess but it's a very iconic album cover image and so i can sort of understand why you know when your daughter comes to you and is like this this looks like your face and you're like that is my face from 30 years ago what the hell it's amazing isn't it yeah yeah that was about 2010 when i started listening to them like properly, mm-hmm. not just hearing, because I had, you know, A-Punk would drop onto a compilation CD that I'd burn or whatever. But I'm pretty sure that was the reason I, I got into them. So Modern Vampires, the next one up. Tell us a bit about it. Well, okay. So this is the reason, the reason I chose it is because it's just a step up from good kind of quirky indie music to really polished it's a polished sound and they've just introduced more to it like the whole album is is more they've got pianos now they've got organs on modern vampires just the sound is better they seem to rely less on the kind of afrobeat style Mm -hmm. it's like they've really found their feet it's an interesting one from my perspective because you brought this as this is the album i'm gonna do and i went "Eh, no that i love that album and then i went and listened to it It it's like oh that's a great track oh that's a great track oh that's a great track all the way through, there just seem to be so many brilliant tracks. I'm also amused by the fact that this week you're arguing for the more polished album, whereas when we talked about Gummers <laughs> last week, you're arguing for the more DIY album. And, and I was the other side of the, of the argument. So apparently we have zero consistency when it comes to that. Yeah, oh, no, no one said we needed to be consistent on this podcast. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm totally allowed to say that. I, I think also the songcraft is better. Mm. The earlier ones take an idea and and just keep the idea going. Um, whereas these songs just seem a bit more rounded. Like Unbelievers, the second track, 
it's a slam dunk of a track. I think that when I listened to that, you realised that was the step up. Just throughout the whole, the way that it's constructed, the lyrics, the the pace of it, it, it just sounds like a better song. There's also an element, I think, of them really f- working out what it is they want to say more. So the stuff that comes in this album is a bit more, it's a bit more well thought through both from a lyrical and from a concept and from a musical perspective. And there's also a lot more of this contrast. They've always had this, but more of this contrast of wonderful, musically uplifting sounding music, but with lyrics that are, you know, a little bit dark or a little bit sad once you actually go and listen to them properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Like the the next song, Step, there's a line in there which says, wisdom's a gift, but you'd trade it for youth. And it is that wistful mm-hmm. looking back of, okay, you're smart now, but you're not young. It's cool. <laughs> uh a great a great singer songwriter once wrote i wish that i knew what i know now when i was younger well, exactly <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there's there's some brilliant stuff on here if, if you've got obviously those are two great tracks but other stuff on the album that particularly stands out for you um their greatest song well caveat that their greatest song until a track from um their latest album but we'll go on to that hannah hunt is my favourite song on the album. And it's their, I don't know, I think it's their magnum opus. They kind of just, it builds, it's gently kind of talks about this this girl and this, I think it was, I think there's two of them running away together or something. It sounds like it's a, it's a relationship where these two just want to escape. The song just plods on and then at, at two minutes 40, it just opens out into this kind of, uh, such a soundscape, it's wonderful. The, the lyrics kick off, the lyrics, though we live on the US dollar, you and me, we've got our own sense of time. It just kind of evokes this, all right, so what about the money? It's about you and me, and it's kind of cool. I, I love that song. It's a real, real personal favourite of mine. There's an element of the, the piano and slide guitar being much more of an, a classic Americana sound to it than than I'd heard from them previously. And I think that goes back to your point around them evolving and maybe looking at other other areas or widening the areas that they look at rather than focusing on that, that one spot that they sort of found as a sweet spot for the first two albums. Yeah, though they nail it. And then the next song on there is Everlasting Arms, which is total Paul Simon. If you're going to claim they're a ripoff of the way that Paul Simon did his Graceland stuff, Everlasting Arms is a bit of that. And it it almost annoys me that they kind of fall straight back into that old style straight after something like that see i I don't mind it because i don't like it when bands completely throw away everything they've done before in the pursuit of something new or we've got to do something different for the third album unless you're radiohead (laughs) but we're completely abandoning your sound and even radiohead didn't completely abandon their sound people who think that kid a doesn't sound like OK Computer haven't listened to OK Computer properly. You could say the same of pop artists as well, like Madonna and Kylie, who do that. Just ditching an old sound and trying something totally new. Right, but their whole modus operandum is to basically sell albums. They're there to influence and be influenced by popular culture, not necessarily being true to a sound that they themselves want to pursue. Good point. Madonna will do anything to be on top and stay on top and that's fine like i've got nothing against her for that she's been very successful at it 
but that's what you are if you're a pop artist. Yeah, true. The album continues actually in some in really good form. I get annoyed by the squeaky voices on Yahey, but after that, Hudson almost closes the album. The last two songs from there are much more mellow. Hudson is this song about almost post-apocalyptic New York, and it's just this quiet, somber way to close out an album. I love it. This whole album just it's just mature as well. I, right. I like the way that they're they've definitely found their feet and they're not afraid to put some really interesting lyrics to music. And a lot of what they do in this album there's stuff that they've done before, but the the harmonies on this album are just wonderful. And and to be fair, the the next album as well, they build on that in a lot of places. And it's being smart about it and how they use that as an option. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned the next album. So the last album they wrote, 2019's Father of the Bride, mm-hmm. is another good one. I know where you're going. Well, we're going to we're going to Harmony Hall because good. it's their best track. So and, good. And it's a song, it's one of those crossover songs that you could imagine on a kind of niche rock radio station, something kind of really quite small, but also on a mainstream radio station. It'll it's one of those that transcends boundaries a bit. Oh, the opening folk acoustic guitar alone is just just magical, isn't it? So I listened to the Song Exploder podcast on Harmony Hall. I've listened to it as well. Have you? Yeah, yeah. Definitely worth a listen. If you like music and understanding music, Song Exploder is a brilliant podcast to listen to. The thing that got me about this particular song on Song Exploder was that there are so many disparate parts of the song and Ezra Koenig wrote it but he has all these ideas and he keeps talking about each individual idea which you hear throughout the song you hear these different styles and these different riffs and I can't remember who who helped him with it I need to go back and listen to that podcast again but if you want to know go and listen to that podcast yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but you should it's, it's way better than we can describe it but a musical buddy I don't think it's one of the band came in and almost just said yeah this is how it should all fit together squashed it all together they recorded it and it's it's fantastic it's a great great piece of music until you mentioned it just now i'd forgotten that they sort of pull very different sounding pieces out and you kind of almost don't get that this can even fit together it doesn't sound like something that should be able to fit together yeah the the song started from his guitar riff Mm -hmm. which i was going to try and sing but it can't because it's really quite complicated (laughs) but it's only two notes it's only two chords and he just had this riff, which he just kept on playing and playing and playing, but just couldn't fit it into a song. Mm-hmm. And then the the vocals in the the chorus, I guess, he recorded that on his phone, kind of walking down the street. And it's quite cool because they play that original recording. Yeah. So you can hear him kind of wandering along and the, the trees rustling and you can hear him just singing really badly into his phone. Yeah. But those ideas just get slowly merged together. It's, it's a cool way of seeing the creative process at work. And again, for me, this really demonstrates where they are in terms of that upbeat music because it's got that piano that sounds really bright and breezy and it's got those beautiful vocal harmonies again and it's all misleadingly chipper because as soon as you actually listen to the the lyrics and read the lyrics it's all about people and institutes that you thought you could rely on letting you down yeah they do that a lot don't they yeah there's a lot of social commentary where you it's across the whole spectrum of wealth and social statement and friendship and age and all sorts there's there's loads of commentary in their lyrics about that and to be honest i don't think i've gone 
right into the depths of a lot of their songs to really find out what they're talking about because there's a lot of intelligent comment going on there so that's definitely one to to listen out for if you've got the time to to dig deep into their back catalogue yeah any other tracks that you'd particularly call out on this album um you know what i i think they all just they all just disappear into the background because that one track is so good and i've listened to the album a few times it's a good album but to be honest the, the harmony hall track is is the absolute standard they've kind of outdone themselves so yeah uh, no i'm not going to call out any others that's my <laughs> fair enough the one song in there it's a long album though it's over an hour it's like an hour and six minutes long it's a and there's loads of songs on there so yeah. i think their error here might have been just to put too much stuff on one one album worth a listen though i definitely think it's a very decent album it's not the kind of bored going around in circles doing the same thing over and over type sound it is a bit different i do agree with you that Harmony Hall is such a great track that everything else sort of pales a little bit in comparison. You, you almost want them to hit that height three or four times on the album rather than just the once. Yeah, and those hitting those heights they do on Modern Vampires enough to say that's the, the best album they've got. That's why I'd pick it. Yeah, uh, I would say Modern Vampires and Vampire Weekend are very, very even in my love of their back catalogue but i'd say that's heavily down to the fact that i love a punk <laughs> in a way that y- you've mentioned you're not a fan because as you said you've seen them live haven't you because i haven't mm-hmm. um that's partly because my festival going has just hit the skids and in about 2005 so just before they started appearing mm-hmm. I- i've not seen them what- what's their sound like does it translate from the recording to live is it different it's very similar they're not one of these bands that's very intricate and delicate on album and then very raucous and very loud on stage they have a big sound but they're trying to continue to have all of that detail to showcase everything that they want to showcase in their sound i've actually seen them a couple of times i saw them end of the road most recently but i saw them back in london in I want to say either the Brixton Academy or the Hammersmith Apollo. It was one of those sized yeah. venues. And they were, they were wonderful there as well. And this was, I think, after Contra. So it was a much more limited set of music for them to pick from. I had a really wonderful time both times. So yeah, definitely, definitely a good band to go and see live. I do wonder whether you'd get to see them in that size of venue again i suspect they're more of the kind of o2 arena stadium size which feels crazy to me because out of everyone you talked about vampire weekend there's a large group of people that go who there's a large group of people that go are those dickheads and then there's the people that really love them (laughs) and so it almost feels like they still feel like a medium-sized indie band to me yeah you know what i bet if they came back here to play a big arena i reckon a third of the audience would turn up on the back of harmony hall because it's been played so much and they wouldn't know anything about their the first two albums at all first three probably but you'd also get a quarter of the audience turning up just because of a punk and yeah. the comma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so exactly. exactly yeah but but brilliant band so from an influence perspective is there anything that they've led you into or is it more that they're they're sort of towards the end of a set of influences i think it's it's the latter and and good on them for it 
they've appeared at a time when guitar bands are, are dead and gone. They've almost reimagined what that kind of indie sound is like. So you don't need to have the full-on um, distortion sound on your through your pedals to to make an impact. And I think the the modern indie crowds really do look to bands like Vampire Weekend as the kind of the, the future of of guitar-based music, I guess. Have you listened to any of the solo stuff from any of their members, I guess? You know what I have, and the solo stuff from Rostam is okay. is really, really good. It's titled Rostam. So so Rostam Batmanglish has released this under his own name. In a River is a song that's that's amazing. He's got a load of work that's come out. Definitely worth a listen. Very Vampire Weekend. When I first heard it, I thought Vampire Weekend had, had released a song. So there's nothing new there really but it's lovely work it's really worth worth digging into nice have you listened to bio which is chris bio's work no i've again not got into it but i assume it's similar i had listened to it when it first came out he's released two albums now but i've only really properly listened to the first one which is called the names it's not far from vampire weekend but it's like if vampire weekend had decided to go with electronica rather than guitarsy indie and there's a track on there called sister of pearl which sounds very vampire weekend but it's an absolutely wonderful song so i i recommend if you like vampire weekend maybe go and check out some of the solo stuff that their members have done because it's they both talk about it in a way that it's not oh we're doing side projects they feel like it's a thing of its own in its own right yeah it's cool and i I do like it when bands do this it just shows they've got another outlet and sometimes that almost keeps a band together right and you can have a side project and you can just get that stuff out your system and then go back to the band's kind of core focus when you're with everyone else yeah, as long as you're not doves and you fuck off to do it for a decade. <laughs> yeah, don't come back. But yeah. yeah, exactly. Cool. Nice one. All right, mate. Cheers for uh, bringing that one along. Great call for our 50th. Good work. I'll have to do something decent for episode 51, but obviously I don't have to necessarily hit the same heights that you've done here. Yeah, good luck. Good luck. We'll search Thanks. for another artist. But there are, <laughs> as we said before, I mean, you know what? You start you start digging into back catalogues and there are hundreds out there. So I'm sure we won't be stuck for too long. Cool. Brilliant. All right. Cheers, mate. Cheers, buddy. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong. 